Greetings, future fossils. Way back in episode 25, I interviewed Dadara, Daniel Rosenberg, a Dutch artist who has executed some of Burning Man's most amazing, provocative installations over the last 10 years or so. When we linked up in anticipation of my last burn in, in 2017, he was getting ready to install Solop's Mission, an enormous mecha-like cube in the playa where he locked himself up for an entire week and painted a virtual reproduction of Burning Man based exclusively on the stories that he was hearing from people who came into the exhibit. I was thinking a lot about that conversation this year and how it demonstrates what a visionary Dadara is. Although William Irwin Thompson rightly says that there's a major difference between prediction and prophecy, I'd like to think that Daniel Rosenberg, in his masterful ability to read the tea leaves of the emergent zeitgeist, somehow caught that in three years we'd be celebrating Burning Man online. Of course, I use that ever most treacherous word, we, here, when it's not entirely appropriate or you have to stretch your definitions in order to accommodate it. I didn't make it out to Burning Man this year or in in any of its VR instances. But as I discuss in this week's conversation with Burning Man's resident philosopher, caveat magister, as well as my friends Naomi Most of the Noisebridge Hackerspace and Mitch Mignano, whom you might remember from episodes 58, dematerializing Blackrock City kind of aerosolized it in the way that Polish writer Zygmunt Bauman has written about the dual nature of modernity as competing forces of control and radical change in the way that Karl Marx defines the modern age by saying, all that is solid melts into air. I felt like Burning Man this year by being nowhere in particular, was everywhere. A kind of consummation of its radically decentering promise, which until now was pinned in place with a giant wooden effigy. Amidst the terrifying bloom of forest fires on the U.S. West Coast, anxieties about the upcoming election, accelerating news of technological and scientific discovery. I spent my Labor Day weekend immersed in one of the most potent rituals of my entire life and seated at my desk at home, felt like I might as well be out there licking burning alkaline dust off my fingers, having magical and synchronistic conversations with fascinating international strangers, and sipping from the vein of mystery. As Viktor Frankl put it, what gives light must endure burning, which recalls my own first burn in 2008 when I was ecstatically overwhelmed by the superfluity, the cornucopia of creative effort besetting me on all sides, calling to mind, Terence McKenna's report from the DMT machine elves not to give in to astonishment. Well, friends, here we are. 
It is 2020, and if this isn't some kind of sextuple bacon cheeseburger of a year, I don't know what could be. I guess we'll find out in 2021. That overwhelm, though, to continue on this totally rampant tour of quotations of brilliant people, cracks us open. And as Leonard Cohen put it, it's how the light gets in. So how to deal with narrative collapse? By shining, burning brilliantly, and welcoming each other to the fires that we dot across the landscape of our culture. Before we begin this week, I want to dedicate this episode to my friend James Orock Johnston, a legendary burner who died parasailing in Nevada this year. James was the author of a number of really fascinating books, including Tryptamine Palace, a very active member of the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors community, one of the most fun and interesting and daring rogues I've ever had the pleasure to call a friend. It's one of this year's many minor tragedies amidst the larger tragedies that James and I were talking about having him on the show for months before he passed. And even though I regretfully missed my chance to commit his brilliant mind to this museum, his presence and his legacy is felt. Rock on, rock. While I'm feeling contemplative and grateful, I'd also like to thank all of the new patrons that have signed on to support this show at Patreon this week. It's David Garrett, Nicholas Gwinnett, Andrew Marsh, Ariel Ali, Grayson Ursic. Thank you all, and thanks to everyone else who continues to demonstrate in any ways they feel inspired to keep this show afloat. It is impossible without you, and it is exciting to see this scene grow and flower and draw in so many awesome people and become something greater than just my recorded conversations. I'd also like to thank the folks who bought my music this week, Millsley and Lawrence Gurley, both, for swimming upstream, as it were, and actually buying music in this day and age. After this awesome conversation with caveat magister Naomi Most and Raven Mitch Mignano, I am excited to debut the long, long overdue studio recording I just made of You Don't Have to Move, a song I wrote on a trampoline at Burning Man 2008 finally gave it the right treatment. So stick around and enjoy. And then please bump on over to the show notes and dig into everybody's work and all the cool errata that I've bundled for you there. I hope it lights your fire.
how sensitive do you have this thing? Um, I would, you know, like me, like a, about an inch away, I'd say. If you can hear yourself. Ha. Yeah. Right up on it. Yeah. I wish we had a uh, stand for you. I have like five mic stands. I don't know where they are right now. Pretend like I'm at Fractal Planet or whatever. If you want to introduce yourselves to each other real quick, I'm going to go see if I can find a mic stand so that we know it doesn't sound like we're at Burning Man passing a mic around. Hold on. <laughs> Wouldn't that be appropriate? I don't have any problem with it. Uh, I'm Raven, Mitch Mignano. Hello. <laughs> I'm uh, a good friend of Michael's, but also uh, did some substantial scholarly research on uh, Burning Man in 2007, 2008. After I went, my first burn was in 2004, and then I went every year for at least a decade. I haven't been back in five years, and uh, I didn't stay in academia either, but uh, I did do the Burning Man research and recently got connect, connected with Graham St. John, read my master's thesis, I met, and then uh, he's been, invited me to some things in Europe, and that was back before the pandemic when, right. when <laughs> we could fly around and go do things. We had a lot of fun last summer. So I'm I'm not super in the game at the moment, but uh, I do have a. What were what were the areas of your uh, of your research? What were you looking at specifically? I was interested in, well, you know how at Burning Man on Playa, it seemed like, especially during that time. I don't know what it's like now, but in two thousand five, six, seven, and people would. Uh, have a nice experience uh, at a like a workshop or a little gathering, and and uh, and then not not stop talking about how to take this home with them and how transformative mm-hmm. it was and all that. And so I was curious about what it is, what about the experience is so transformative, or if it is. So I put it in a more of a cultural historical context. And um, my academic thesis was something like the. Tales of the Cacophony Society book that came mm-hmm. out later, but I I've did it and I think I did the writing in 2008. So, but I was also, I, I was at a, working with some interesting professors who were open, uh, open-minded about Burning Man, but also about the idea of an evolution of consciousness, that it's not just a shifting, that, that culture isn't just shifting ideas, but it's like different structures of consciousness. And you can compare yourselves to the ancient Greeks and, you, you would uh, you'd have to do an imaginative leap. You can't just make assumptions. So, so I I, I also uh, put that transformation in the context of a framework of evolution of consciousness. That was with uh, William Irwin Thompson, who we had on the show for just over a hundred episodes ago. Who was also one of my biggest inspirations, and it was on his writing and on Mitch being his graduate student that we bonded when we met at Burning Man and. 2010 on a panel together at Entheon. And then he ended up being my anchor point in uh, moving to Santa Fe, actually, because of the work he's been doing with the the people who built Biosphere 2. So that's sort of the, you know, that's, that's, I think, another key piece for me in this conversation generally is the way that these experiments in the desert are part of like an, a, a, an almost an Eric Davis uh, ter- jurisdiction level tradition of desert mysticism in in arizona and Mm -hmm. new mexico i feel like both of us are kind of involved in like a cultural anthropology of that kind of desert futurism like eric has mapped the sacred landscape of california like i feel very aligned with his work in that regard so that's me anyway and just for 
Raven's sake, Naomi, if you care to introduce yourself. Yeah, for sure. I um, Can you see the title I changed myself to? I feel like that's, <laughs> yeah. that's that describes what's happening in my life pretty well right now. I made a Notion like project database for this Noisebridge, the Noisebridge hackerspace. This is anarchist hackerspace in the mission of San Francisco because we're moving. And also now I'm making an air quality tracking plugin that brings in this data so that we can co- like coordinate with like, okay, like how many volunteers are going to need N95s or like N100 masks? I, I don't know if you know, but the entire West Coast of the United States is on fire, just in case you didn't know. <laughs> Yeah, just for those listening in in the future, in which uh, probably much more than just the West Coast is on fire, and Naomi's work has gone on to become some foundational in the way that millions of Americans navigate their everyday lives. I'm sure <laughs> that. Yeah. Right. So uh, let's see. Well, I'm still Michael. I'm still struggling with the introduction, like my own self introduction here. I work full time in the tech industry. I make make software. I help other people make software. And right now, um, the most important thing in my life is trying to see San Francisco through to the other side of whatever this nonsense is that we're embroiled in. And I do this as a sort of the, you know, no one's officially the leader of the anarchist hacker space, but I do a lot of leadership for this anarchist tribe of uh, hackers and makers and artists uh, and occasional ne'er-do-wells. And I enjoy doing it. I saw there, there's a lot of really interesting social problems to be solved in the course of trying to coordinate a group that is great, generally speaking, greater than Dunbar's number level of people participating at any given time. And that's one of the things that Caveat and I have have elaborated on in numerous conversations with each other because there's a lot of really interesting overlaps between the way that Burning Man volunteerism works and the way that there's a lot of emergent organization going on at Noisebridge. And you also put me in touch with Caveat, for which I'm very grateful. <laughs> Caveat, you want to you wanna, uh, take your turn here? and Sure. So I'm Caveat Magister, which is the... Uh, pen name that I use for all my Burning Man writings. I have been involved with the Burning Man organization for, let's call it 15 years, give or take now, Um, and started as the volunteer coordinator for Media Mecca, then was asked to write for their website and said no. And then they, they asked again. And eventually we, we, we came to a detente where I didn't want to write for their website because I didn't think they were going to let me ask challenging and interesting open-ended questions about the culture. And then their communications manager said, no, that's so what I want you to do that I'm actually just going to give you publishing credentials on our website. You can write whatever you want, whenever you want with no review process. And that's how much we want you to be looking at this stuff. And I said, well, okay, I don't think that's going to work, but it's too good an offer to pass up. So we'll give it a shot. And lo and behold, it's still going on 10 odd years later. Um, I've written over 300 of those pieces, uh, as well as a lot of other journalist type stuff that has nothing to do with Burning Man. Uh, I've written a number of books. The one that is probably most germane is The Scene That Became Cities, What Burning Man Philosophy Can Teach Us About Building Better Communities. Uh, But I've also been the editor and uh, semi-official ghostwriter for uh, Chicken John's two books, which are related to, you know, living one's life as art and organizing art organizations and things like that. And uh, written a number of things for and with Burning Man on 
theme issues that came up on uh, the relationship between art and money, between uh, ritual and society, uh, things like things like that. What makes transformational change? So these days, I tend to call myself a countercultural philosopher when nothing else comes up. Awesome. So the umbrella that I want to just drape over this whole conversation is that I have not been anywhere nearly as prolific as you in my own writing. I've been chasing other rabbits like music and, and fine art and that kind of stuff in my life. But probably the most popular piece I've ever written was uh, called transformational festivals are a symptom of dissociation. It was about how much as we can recognize a society by its prisons, we can recognize a society by the way that it deals with this you know, universal human phenomenon of festival in, and the way that it appears in that culture is often symptomatic of the, you know, the, the pathologies of that culture. And in our case, turning the transformational experience into a consumable commodity, I think has been uh, very, both evident in that we are doing it uh, very hard to prevent in many ways. Some of your best stuff that I've read caveat is, you know, about sort of restoring, you know, the simple and natural communitas and like returning things to relationship and away from spectacle, which is, you know, a big piece of this, this latest piece you put on Burning Man VR. So anyway, I just, what I would love to hear y'all talk about is sort of, in addition to everything that you've just said, a sense of like what it means to bring transformative lessons back from a festival and anchor them in, in the real world or like when that sort of swashes back up back into the virtual that kind of back and forth that's going on right now and then what you know how the pathologies get swashed back and forth also that there's something about both the good and bad that is being drawn out of one environment and like replicated in the other so i don't know really know where where y'all feel like anchoring that but um i'm happy to just perch and watch. Let me sort of jump in here with a, with a couple of thoughts I've, I've had about these kinds of issues, one of which is I think that you're absolutely right that it is possible to see in Burning Man and especially in the transformational festival industry, uh, the transformational industrial complex, the, the pathologies of society. Uh, in fact, I think Burning Man is, can very well be looked at as a response to the pathologies of late 20th and early 21st century post-industrial information economy capitalism. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's very clear that Burning Man can be seen as a, a response to that, as an attempt to reclaim humanity and agency and a number of things from that. And I think that's especially evident in the more commercialized versions of it. I think it's notable, actually, that whereas you talked about the packaging of transformational experiences as a commodity, I think largely what you have is the failed packaging of transformational experiences as a commodity, that none of these these wannabes and commodified attempts to do it have ever really succeeded on the, the terms that we've set. A, a Mick Burning Man is more Mick and much less Burning Man. It just it just hasn't worked. And I think that's notable. And I think I think that's important. Like that one outside of Las Vegas. <laughs> That will go unnamed. Yeah, let's, let's not name it, but I'm, I agree completely. Um, yeah, yeah case of that. I mean, they're fine on their own terms, but they are not achieving what it is that this was inspired by and set out to achieve in the first place, generally not even close. And as for what's happening in the moment, I think that it's too soon to say 
what we're seeing exactly or what kind of pathologies are, you know, evident in that. But I do think that one of the serious problems we're encountering with the attempt to do transformative experiences in virtual space is, well, aside from the fact that we just don't know how yet, I mean, putting that aside, is the fact that it's not like we're coming to the virtual environment fresh. When people first came to the playa, when they came to the Black Rock Desert, their their response was, oh my God, what is this? What do we do? How do we live? They They had to invent everything from scratch. Whereas when we come to an internet environment, we are not coming to it from scratch. Our intention may be to do Burning Man, but we very easily fall into 20 years of bad internet habits because we know this environment. We come to this environment and... Our habits, our, our, our bodies, our, our, you know, our intellect doesn't say, oh, this is, uh, this is Burning Man. It says this is Internet. And so we behave the way we do on the Internet. And I think we, we can all agree that any transformative experiences that generally happen in Internet contexts are, are not the kind that we are looking for. So, Not to mention that you, you don't have to leave your living room to go on the Internet. I mean, the pilgrimage aspect is huge for people to to have to take maybe it's not as much of a risk as the first playa first people that went to the playa but to, it's there's still some risk involved when you you kind of go on your friend's word and you got to go out to this crazy place and it's cost you know it feels like every year before burning man uh every year a couple weeks before like it seemed like a whole life collapsed you know it's just just to and it's just get there <laughs> you know and and then the, all the things that you want to do when you're there as you know as you go on you do more and you can't i don't know how you how you would ritualize that on a um just doing it online but that's huge well i want to comment that that's there's something very basic to the behavioral economics of that equation that persists in lots of different contexts like um like sales funnels for example are much more convincing and much more sticky and people actually follow through with the sale if it's taken a long time to get to the sales point. Like if you've they've had to sit through like a 30 minute webinar and all sorts of things like that. So there is something fundamental to the human consciousness about the sense of uh, time investments or maybe social capital investment that it took to get there. Yeah, in the context of creating Burning Man experiences, I've tentatively labeled this the law of conservation of effort, although conservation of inconvenience might be just as good. Uh, I think that Black Rock City and regional events benefited in ways we did not fully understand from the fact that you had to not only go through this immense pain in the ass process to get there, but then you were committed to that thing wholeheartedly. I mean, you know, you, you couldn't just go in and out. You had made a commitment and, and you were there. And so once that was the case, almost anything that happened in that environment had a benefit of being in that environment and being this thing that you have traveled all this this way to do. And even if in that environment, you're sort of, you know, doing the physical equivalent of browsing, oh, let's see what's over in here in this theme camp. Oh, let's see what's over here. You were committed to the entire experience in a way that you're not when you're just you're just browsing online. And I think that that creates makes a lot of things low hanging fruit in Black Rock City that are in fact really hard to do when it's just, oh, let me peek in this Zoom room or let me check out this this virtual space and spend a minute or two seeing if I like it and then move on. 
It's interesting that you you brought that up because actually one of the, the first things I wanted to uh, say to you in this conversation is, again, because of your copious body of work, I'm not sure to what extent you've covered this. I'm sure you have covered this, but it became really clear to me uh, when I started coming to Burning Man in 2008 that this environment was in some sense essentially a physical instantiation of the organizational principles of the World Wide Web and that each of these camps is basically a website that draws in developers and traffic from all over the world, usually centered in one place, but you know, often sort of distributed in a, a kind of a, a gaseous state, which is the way that Raven's graduate advisor, William Irwin Thompson, talked about the kind of phase transition that society is going through generally anyway, the movement into a chaotic, dynamical, historical era in which, you know, signifiers are all floating because literally, you know, there's something about the ratcheted metabolic processes of our technosphere that has created a lot of hot air if this podcast isn't already like a strong indication of that. But, you know, so, you know, there's something about going to Burning Man that sort of makes clear for me and for other people who are like very, very tuned into the way that they spatially organize their embodied metaphors, like metaphors of time and and of memory palace kind of cartographies of the inner world, that this is an an extrusion of that. And like lots has been said about the way that, you know, uh, Burning Man is, is so excellent at showing how imagination becomes form. You know, that's like one of its key lessons. But then, so there's this, there's, again, there's this sort of like uh, eddy that we seem to be in historically uh, on the great river where uh, that form has been extruded and is now washing back up into the virtual and there's like a reflux going on there of some kind that I, I find really interesting and would love to hear folks comment on. Yeah, the, the notion that Burning Man has either been a physical embodiment of what was becoming the Internet or at least evolved in tandem with it uh, has, has, been, has been commented on a lot. Uh, we actually, that was one of the things that we looked at for the iRobot theme series in 2018. My initial thought is that the primary difference, and I think this this goes a long way as a, as a simple thing is that in one of his books, one of the more recent ones, I can't remember which Jaron Lanier referred to the decisions about how the World Wide web was developed. They said that they made every interaction light. There is no cost whatsoever. No to, to clicking on a link to, to browsing, to posting something, to sending an email. It's all very easy. It's light. Whereas burning man especially if you're going out to that kind of environment, all these things are incredibly heavy. They, they, they all have an immense sunk cost that you're putting down. You cannot simply go and, and, and edit. You can't, you can't just backtrack. Um, every decision you make there is, is, is heavy. It's weighty. It's, it's meaningful. And uh, the, the point that, uh, that Jaron was making in, in this conversation and in his book uh, was that uh, he thinks that making parts of the internet, in particular virtual reality, heavier is one way to solve a lot of the social problems that we are seeing uh, emerge online. And I think this is, this is one of the, but this is one of the key differences between the, the remarkable par- parallel evolution between Burning Man, Black Rock City, and then, you know, the, the culture of Burning Man and the internet is that, you know, it's, it's happened in tandem, but the internet has encouraged a, a culture of lightness, whereas Burning Man, all these interactions, all these decisions are, are immensely heavy and weighty and grounded. I do think there's something something to focus on when it comes to the relationship between costs and meaning, cost and value to us. Um, 
think I have more to say, but then I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me think of, I mean, you wouldn't, if you had, uh, you know, if Amazon sent you a, a piece of a mummified fink, finger of St. Jonas, probably wouldn't be nearly as interesting as if you walked all the way across Spain. That's like what we were talking about before <laughs> with the Pokemon. You know, I mean, the thing is that the, it, it's one thing, there's a parallel, I, if I remember correctly, there was some kind of linear correlation between the the growth of Burning Man. Burning Man itself, or the orig- the early burns, it's not an internet phenomenon, but maybe the growth is the, the kind of like rapid expansion. And then you can't separate it out from the culture of the, that everybody comes from. But the thing is that the thing is that at Burning Man, if, if when you have a decommodified culture, then in my way of seeing things, culture can do what it's supposed to do. Like I studied Rudolf Steiner a lot, this this esoteric philosopher, and he had a idea about the threefold social organism. And uh, it breaks down like liberty, egalite, fraternite, like same in the French Revolution. That uh, the idea is the state should be should be for rights, and economy should be based on brotherhood. And culture should be totally free. And in a theocracy, you would have culture dominating the other spheres. And in communism, you'd have the state dominating the other spheres. But when you do that, whenever in capitalism, and especially late capitalism, when you have the economic sphere overdetermining the politics and the culture creation, like LA is like, I think William Armour Thompson says, it's like the Vatican of the entertainment culture. You have this kind of uh, centralized New York and LA, this kind of like, authoritarian like dictate everything goes through capitalism in a certain way and burning man in my experience and i've seen in other people's lives as well it seems to allow a more primordial human almost like anthropologically human function of what culture creation should be heal everything about culture healing art um comedy tragedy like everything that it could and should be it's it's much more possible and to some extent you know you could argue likely when when you decommodify and you all go out there and kind of like a well yeah totally however like at the same time and i love let me be clear i love burning man i love every year i've been i've learned so much from it but i just have to say that capitalism being about the creation of externalities that burning man only being possible because it has managed to like create a membrane against everything that characterizes a city like Los Angeles makes it in some sense, like the paragon of that sort of gesture, the socioeconomic process. And so I don't know, it's obviously complicated, but I guess like the question for me is like how much of that can actually be brought home, you know, because when I see Santa Fe looking like, reminding me of Burning Man, when I see pictures of San Francisco reminding me of Burning Man, it's because the systems that we have sort of taken for granted in those cities are failing us. And so it's like actually in the sort of the um, the fissure opened up through collapse of these systems that, you know, that we have started taking for granted, that this kind of transcendent possibility emerges also, but in a much more sort of ominous way. So I don't know, what do y'all think? Well, I, I think that... Um we have been so conditioned to by you know this, this notion that capitalism, liberal capitalism, won, and you know, I mean, 
we all make fun of the end of history. And yet we all in some ways had had that notion that, you know, OK, this we, we lost for a time the notion that there was a ideological alternative. I think we've missed out on the very basic function of culture, which is that we can make it what we want it to be. We can create different cultural spaces with different kinds of rules and different ways of engaging and that this is entirely possible. And in that sense, Burning Man is a very successful example of this, but it's not doing anything miraculous in that sense. It's simply saying, okay, we're drawing a line, we're drawing a circle, and in here, this is what we do and how things work. And if we want to extend that circle, you know, extend that line, that is entirely doable. But the, the basic premise of, you know, okay, if we if we try to make culture work this way, these kinds of things happen. It's sort of an if-then statement. This is, this is very, very doable. Um, I think to, to go back to the internet for a moment, the, the early internet reminded me a lot more of the kind of, you know, free-for-all culture for culture's sake that we're talking about here. I mean, it was it was much more of a, God, what are you going to encounter next? There was actually, you know, very little commerce happening. It was people doing things for, you know, the sake of putting something weird and interesting up. Um, and then in many ways, the, the central not the central, it wasn't centralized, but when it got more and more commoditized, um, suddenly you started seeing these things going in a, in a very different direction. But it is, it is possible, it is absolutely possible to, to create cultural spaces in neighborhoods, in parks, in, you know, whether temporary or time to be permanent, that, that do this kind of thing. Absolutely. That, that's how culture works. Does our anarchist operations manager wish to <laughs> speak to this? Yeah. So I, I keep thinking, I'm, I'm glad that you guys covered the territory that you did. Cause like for one thing you jogged my memory about earlier and I was trying to get at uh, costs and value. Cause I keep thinking about Tyson Yonkaporta in the book sand talk and how he spends an entire chapter laying out how <clears throat> cities are not bad because necessarily capitalism, but cities themselves, even prior to capitalism, basically the way that the reason that they can exist is that they externalize all of their wastes. They externalize all their costs outside of the city limits. And that's exactly what Burning Man does too. So in, in a, in a certain sense, in a very pessimistic sense, Burning Man hasn't transcended the, the constraints of the, of the economics that this entire you know, country, world, etc., finds itself embroiled in. And it has that very real problem, right, of like bags and bags and bags of trash that have to go somewhere after the event. And when we think about the transcendental meaning of a thing like Burning Man or the, the fact that, as Caveat alluded to, even low bar activities become more meaningful just because of the immense planning and the sort of decision cost and even the physical costs of like you have to bring all that water to the desert etc you have to convince your friends to go you have to know how to batten down the hatches against the dust storms and so on and so forth those costs are externalized to the environment so these are the things that i'm i'm thinking about particularly as the entire west coast of the united states is on fire right now i have four air filters running in my house in san francisco because the air quality index is at about 300. Meanwhile, as we speak, the Arctic Circle is melting and permafrost is melting in, this, in Siberia. And yet another mammoth skeleton basically just fell out of the mud. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I don't know if I should apologize for taking this conversation over to this like, climate change area, but it's really hard to ignore this thing about do we actually need meaningful experiences to be really economically expensive? 
I mean, it was 95 degrees in the middle of the night when last time I was at Burning Man in 2017, I bought a coat and then I was like, I can't even wear this coat at Burning Man at nighttime anymore. And that was like scary. That was, that was the last big forest fire year. I, I recall at least as far as like Medford being orange in the sky and all that, I could be wrong. 2017 was a, was a brutally, brutally uh, hot year out there, but I think 2018 was also a really awful forest fire year, if I recall. The 10 hottest years on record happened within the past 15 yeah. years. So it's not wrong to bring this up. No, I, no. <laughs> it's not wrong to bring it up. But it, uh, but I, I, I mean, and I don't want to s- seem like a dick, but I always, I'm a little sensitive about the, like it, sh- it should be brought up and, and like at any, any possible opportunity, but also like applied to the culture at large. And I, I have a hard time with Burning Man itself being, critiqued on ideological terms because i would be more disappointed if if i went to burning man and it wasn't people weren't funny than i would if people were still like using as much energy to get there because to me the idea it's great that burning man is a is an amazing party and if it does more if it restores a ritual that we've that the modern enlightenment has removed from us which is namely something like uh the like the, even the Catholics had the Feast of Fools, you know, the Romans had Saturnalia. There, there are these homeostatic, trickster-like elements that in culture that if you don't have them, then the power bias can just run tyrannically in any direction. So indigenous tribes in like here the, in um, the Pueblos have, uh, have heyokas, sacred clowns. And if you get to go to a ceremony where you experience a heyoka, then you see like what we laugh at comedians on Comedy Central, but you could see what maybe the impulse like really is to keep the cultural program, which is very, very alive. You think about what was it Picasso said when he went to like a like his cave and he went to Lascaux and he's like they invented they invented everything. everything. Yeah. So if if Picasso's right then humans are extremely, and we already know, right? We're extremely powerful and we, it's, it's, it's really like cause a lot of problems by having so much, so much power clearly. And I think part of healing that is having a cultural space where that can be played with and that can be deconstructed. So I don't want to, if it does that, I would be happy if it also transcended civilization, going back to agriculture and like did something the Sumerians <laughs> couldn't even do. I would actually probably kill myself because why, what would the, you know, so I, so although I totally think that that's a real thing, I don't want burning. I, I even found the 2007 theme like annoying because the, not the theme, the, the under the man, there was, um, the, it felt like this ecological world's fair. And for me, and on some level, I guess I'm a purist, I guess everybody has their values, but I thought that maybe that's not the right thing to do at Burning Man is put a, an agenda out content-wise. Do you know what I mean? Because it's a ritual space that needs to function a certain way. That said, there's nothing wrong with like uh, sharing relevant information to a community. I don't think putting our heads in the sand and in people, it, it gets used that way too. Obviously, you can't control it fascistically in that sense, you know. May I quickly respond because I I don't want it to make it sound like I'm anti Burning Man. Um, I what? think that <laughs> <laughs> I've been five times and I really really enjoy it. And the only reasons that I usually don't go is because I've decided to travel somewhere else in the world or so on and so on and so forth. So I am definitely part of the problem in terms of the pollution of the earth. Uh, and I think that there's such a thing as reasonable expenditure. More my point was, and I hope that this leads into a place where we talk more about the 
virtual experience that may or may not have transpired uh, for Burning Man this year is that for me, when I attempted to sort of take part in the the virtual Burning Man experience this year, I found that to caveat's point much earlier in this conversation, my expectations of how the internet works were much more front and center for me when I was trying to partake in the virtual Burning Man experience than was the expectations of that sort of high investment cost, high meaningful reward system Mm. at Burning Man. I I think this would be a useful place to draw a clear distinction between Black Rock City and Burning Man. Black Rock City as a specific place where specific things happen and Burning Man as a broader culture that can happen anywhere. Because I think that is a really useful distinction, both for the question of, is it worth doing? And for the question of, okay, can we do it digitally? And if so, how? For me, I mean, okay, Black Rock City as an embodiment of Burning Man has a lot of spectacle and big giant things and, you know, an awful lot of ridiculous, let's just say a stupid amount of effort is spent to, to, to make this thing happen. How, how, however, however wasteful, however, you know, clean, whatever, it's a stupid amount of effort. But I think most people who go more than once are inspired far less by the spectacle than by the moments of bizarre and wonderful human interaction that happen. And indeed by these, you know, what are called transformative experiences, which I'm not sure is a useful term anymore, but, you know, we'll we'll use it because everybody knows what we're talking about. It's those very human moments that happen that are the most profound and the most interesting, the ones that change your life, that give you breakthroughs, that you are even if you're doing big giant art projects, trying to recreate for yourself and others in some way. And so the question of can these things happen outside of Black Rock City is an obvious yes. They were happening with Burning Man's precursors uh, before there was Black Rock City. Uh, they happen all around the world in places other than Black Rock City. Uh, the question is, how do you do it? And the, one of the biggest challenges to doing it is that most people don't even know it's possible. Again, they, they have this sense of, you know, well, this is how human interaction works. This is how culture works. This is what we do. And it takes an experience of it and often a big one before they can go, oh, wait a minute. This is a thing that can be done. And if it's a thing that can be done, then maybe I can do it. And so the big utility of Black Rock City for Burning Man culture, I think, is not just doing it for its own sake, although for the record, I'm big on doing it for its own sake. And in fact, there's a chapter in my book called Burning Man is Pointless, which I, you know, which I believe the only purpose for doing Burning Man is to do Burning Man. Do not add any other agendas on. You can have your agenda, but Burning Man itself has none. But from a cultural utility standpoint, Black Rock City is most helpful when it exists to show people this is possible, and then they take that back with them, and some of them get good at it where they are, and maybe they go back for, you know, refresher courses, and why the hell not? It took me a long time to get good at this, too. But um, but that's the utility of Black Rock City, and Burning Man culture has not only often wondered how well could we do this without this? And let's be clear, there's been a movement among the regional network. Some very prominent people have actually up and said, look, the best thing for us would be if there was no Black Rock City. So this, you know, this has been out there for a while. But now I think genuinely, to the extent that Black Rock City is a real place, and I want to be that, say that playfully, because I want what I say next to be taken more playfully than, you know, horrifically. But we are a culture in diaspora. 
our central capital is gone. We can't go there even if we want to. And furthermore, all of our regional capitals are gone. We can't have these events. We can't do this thing. And so the foundational question before us is exactly in the absence of these things, how do we have these experiences? How do we create them? What do we do with them? And it's interesting and somewhat distressing to me that the answer that a whole lot of people first went to is we can do it on the internet as opposed to we can find ways to do it where we live. I'm, I don't want to come out against virtual Burning Man, although I have all but done that in several cases, but a lot of people had a, you know, a wonderful time. We can discuss the details of what the hell that was and happened and how it worked or didn't work, but it's okay for people to build things online. I no way want to say that it's, that it's not. And furthermore, I do believe that these experiences are possible to have online in various ways. It's just that we don't know how to do it yet. We have not figured that out. But what I cannot square myself with is the degree to which the Burning Man organization and to the extent that it represents the culture has spent a lot of time urging people to spend more time online recently. When in fact, what I think is called for is what I've referred to as a cacophony restoration, the cacophony society being one of the, you know, predecessors of Burning Man out of which it emerged. And, you know, how do we do these things in, in person, even at, even at social distance, how do we change our neighborhoods? How do we bring this, this out there? There's so many questions there that I think are so valuable that, that as an art movement have not been looked at by Burning Man recently, the burners without borders portion of Burning Man, the social service portion of it, the, Hey, let's go and help. That's come into its own right now. That's doing wonderfully and marvelously. And they know what they're about and they're out there doing it. But as an art movement, I think there was way too big a rush to go. We can do it online as, as opposed to, we can do this where we are. Well, do you think there's sort of like a, a CYA effect there? <laughs> like they don't want to tell people to do anything other than that. Can I, can I just quickly answer Naomi with one word? Yes. Yes. I think there was. Well, let's put a pin in that because I think that really speaks to the whole issue of the man still burning on Baker beach this year. And the, the CYA statement issued by the mayor of San Francisco about such an event. But I want to circle back around to that. In discussing the metabolism of it, it's not so much about making a, a normative statement as it is just pointing to the embodied nature of this thing, whether it exists online, whether it exists in person. And that, yeah, I've been thinking, I've been talking with people about uh, Jevons paradox, which is just that, you know, like we're burning more wood now in this age than we were when wood was the primary fuel source in the world. We're burning more wood for fuel. We're burning more oil now that we're finding renewable energy resources. You know, so there's this, again, there's a ratcheting thing here that I just seem stuck on for some reason. But the point being that it draws us directly into this question that I think has been at the heart of all of modernity, which I'm glad you pointed to, which is about the utility of play. And so caveat, you've already spoken to this, but it's this question animal behaviorists have looking at baby elephants. It's the question about why it is that our brains dream, you know, and it's a question that's completely unthinkable to the people that were making the cave paintings of Lascaux. You know, they're just absolutely not thinking in that way. It's, it's very much the feat of imagination that Raven was talking about that's required for us to step out of it and recognize that these things have an intrinsic benefit, which is a line that in my work by day in science communication, you know, I work for a place dedicated to fundamental research and they only accept unrestricted donations and they will only do scientist-driven research into what interests the scientists. And there's no goal 
the way that, you know, so much of modern science is now practiced. There's been such a transformation in this regard from the kind of natural philosophy practiced at the origins of the Royal Society to the kind of science that's now being practiced and written about in proprietary journals or never shared at all. And, you know, so there's this dimension of what is the function that these practices culturally are serving us, which I think, again, gets back to your, you know, your almost sort of homeopathic thing about the Saturnalia, you know, that there's, that it's like a, it's a, well, it's also, I was like also homeopathic in in both senses. Yeah. But it is, it is those two things, you know, that like there's some measure of what the system would regard as poison. That's like required to keep us flexible enough to weather the kind of crisis innovation cycles that we're bringing upon ourselves. One of the things that BlackRock City does exceptionally well in order to bring people into this culture, this mindset, this approach is it offers them what I have called a kind of pragmatic existentialist crisis where you are. Yeah, I had a neat term for it in the book that's escaping me right now, but um, look it up on the Internet. Yeah, we, we can <laughs> we can cut this. Applied existentialism, that's that's what I'm going to call it, this moment of applied existentialism in which you're out there in the desert, it's a decommodified space, there is no way to do what you would normally do. You can't just go to work, you can't just pursue status or money, there are, all these options have been taken away, and so you're confronted with the question, what do I want to do? What do I actually want to do? What is going to intrinsically motivate me? And that's actually something that, you know, I mean, it causes people crises. It's, it has them spin out sometimes. It, it takes them a while. It's very difficult. And BlackRock City is, is an amazing facilitator of that in a way that it is very hard to do in, in more normal environments. Um, it's, but it's still, still going to be done, but it's much easier there. But once people have that, then they do want to, once they figure out, no, this is what really matters to me. If I can't win, if I can't, you know, just go through the motions, this is what I care about. And once people have that, that sense of something that they value unconditionally, that was Larry's phrase for it, an unconditional value, then that becomes central to their lives, of course, because that's what we're here for. We're here to do what we what we care about. And so facilitating that, and, and so often it does come down to doing things playfully as opposed to as opposed to with, you know, an emphasis on on efficiency. It it's hard to learn otherwise. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how children learn. If you're trying to learn something, if you're going through, it is a kind of an existential level crisis. For I've seen so many people go to Burning Man and then actually maybe they expect it to be this just elevating experience where they go home and they're going to be just happy for the rest of the year. But actually they had a great experience, but now they can't deal with themselves and their mm-hmm. lives at home. And then how do you contribute to the community? You know, you go out there and you realize how hard it is your first time. Maybe you're not doing anything beyond just getting there, going with going with a friend and and you get out there and then you see that I remember it was it 2006 and there was this huge, I called it the Belgian waffle. And I'm thinking like how hard it was for me just to get there and do whatever I did that year. And these guys came all the way from Belgium and they built this huge, strange thing. And, and then you, you want, you really want to, you really want to give back. And there's that thing, I think you mentioned it before, like if, if you were to boil it down to one really like uh, crucial function that BlackRock city 
uh, can provide us this um, extreme, it's like this realization that things that you thought were impossible are possible and that other human beings will do things intrinsically. It's like when you're in college and you're, you're in a band or high school or whatever, and you just carry your crap around with you and it's only your girlfriend and 10 other people at the show, you're not making any money, but you love music and you want everybody to hear your music. That's Bernie, still how it is for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But, but that's the thing is that people stop doing those kinds of things and then they go to Burning Man and then they're like, wait a second, like I just love to do these things and I love to share them with people. And that in and of itself is, I like the word crisis. I don't use that, that word very much. It has such a negative connotation, but it's, it means decision in the Greek. It also has this, it's like, and, and you have to, and we're not going to get too esoteric with philosophy here, but I don't know how much free will we, we really have, but we can make decisions and decisions are huge. And people don't, people just avoid making important decisions in their life. And if you have a crisis, you have to make a decision. And that's something that it's amazing how much we can escape from and how easy it is to escape from it. But like you said, when you're out there, you kind of can't escape from it. Like all these things that you, you were expecting to go a certain way and they all fall apart and then you're just stuck there. And then you realize that you have everything you could possibly need because there's amazing people to your left, to your right. And there's all kinds of stuff you can do and you really don't have to do anything you don't want to do. So did, did either of you see that happening in Burning Man VR this year that now feels like a good time to actually get to the point? Yeah. I didn't go. Yeah. We might be the wrong people to ask. So I tried. I went to, I went, but I went to a lot less than I thought I would. Um, as Michael, you mentioned, I, uh, I put out a post uh, a week before virtual Black Rock City saying that I'd come to the conclusion that I just didn't want that to be the center of my burn week. And so I was going to create a, the equivalent of a one man theme camp in my backyard and invite people over one at a time to do a socially distanced visit and then have a ritual and art experience that, uh, that I would put them through. And that would be the center of it. And um, not only did that take up a huge amount of time, I had, uh, I had 18 people come through and do the ritual, which lasted about uh, 90 minutes to two hours a person and uh, including a long talk, I mean, including just, you know, but, uh, and then a few other people come and just, just say, just say hi. And so not only was that just a lot of time in and of itself, but the truth is, is that it was a powerful ritual. It did succeed in, in creating the kind of Burning Man experience that I wanted to. And doing three or four of those a day just left me exhausted, just Utterly good. It was very Burning Man in that sense. I mean, you know, I I was so tired from having done my thing that I just did. Rarely did I have the chops to then go and say, "Okay, I'm going to put my headset on and I'm going to explore." I did that a little bit, but not nearly as as much as I had intended to. That said, I did it a little bit. I played with some of the worlds and some of the parties before the thing was was open and this really started. And I talked to some people. I've talked with a number of people about their experiences and what happened. And I don't know that people are talking about transformational experiences. I at least have not heard anyone talking about that in the virtual context. I've heard a lot of people say it was better than they thought that it would be. I've gotten that a lot. I've, I've heard a number of people say, yeah, actually, that was pretty good. And hanging out with my friends in VR was actually was actually pretty fun. So there's, there's that level of enthusiasm. And I've even heard about a few spaces generally that were really interactive environments where you could grab a lot of things and throw them around and then do stuff there where people say, okay, that, that kind of felt like burning man. 
there was a world created within the uh, BRC VR that that was basically a McDonald's, and you could serve people hamburgers and French fries and shakes, and you could take a giant Coca Cola display out into the parking lot, and people had a lot of fun, sort of rampaging through that. And you know, okay, sure, that, that could be fun. <laughs> um, but I haven't heard a lot about transformative experiences or the sort of peak experiences that we we normally talk about. And I've also heard a lot of people give it a sort of a meh. You know, that was mm. that was not really what what they were looking for. Um, so and and then half the week was people just going, it's not working. I can't access it. So, you know, uh-huh, yeah. I want to comment that for me, I never experienced enough of a cybernetic meshing with my equipment in order to actually get into the event in a way that I feel would have lent, lent to my feelings of like being able to forget that there's another world that I'm, you know, technically standing in and actually completely give myself over to the feeling of burning madness. You know, those great moments that you guys have all described of just like, nope, now you have to figure it out. You have no other option. Now you have to actually dig into your soul and decide what's important to you. I can just take off the helmet and also frequently did because it kind of hurts my head. So mm-hmm. I, I think that there's, I don't actually want to harp too much on the Burning Man experience as itself. Like I, I actually just think the technology is not quite there yet. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree completely. I think it's very different to say that we don't know how to do this yet with the technology we have than it is to say it is not possible to do. I think those are two very different things. And I mean, I've actually, you know, I've ever since the pandemic started, I have been, host creating and hosting small you know zoom oriented art events that sort of try to see okay you know if we how can we do this and i've done it to my satisfaction i am confident that given an idea and a video chat and you know the the technological equivalent of duct tape i can given committed people create these kinds of experiences it's totally doable but it does work differently than it would if I had them in person. It does work differently than it would if we were out in Black Rock City. And until we figure these things out, then, you know, no, no, we can't do it because we, we have to learn it. And the same thing definitely occurred to me with my forays into the, the actual VR worlds, which was that, okay, in a Zoom environment, because I've worked at it for months and months and months, I can figure out how to give people these experiences. I can figure out how to give them a gift. I can figure out how to fuck with them in a productive way. I can figure this out. In these environments, I don't know how to do that yet. I I do not know how to give someone a gift in virtual Black Rock City. I do not know how to start a war in virtual Black Rock City. And again, not saying it can't be done. And that's saying something, guys. (laughs) If Caveat doesn't know how to start a war in virtual Burning Man, that means I don't think anybody knows how to do it yet. So this is, this is, I think we're really in the heart of it because for me, my week, I spent no time in Burning Man VR. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was very interested in doing so. I really wanted to do so, but I felt like last week, something really amazing and unexpected happened for me, which was that I didn't have to go to Burning Man because Burning Man came to me. And I don't mean that in the virtual reality sense. I mean that I still felt like I was at Burning Man all week, that my life, the character of our life now is increasingly, at least in uh, the United States, I can't speak to other countries, but feels increasingly like there were two kind of metaphors that seemed especially on the tip of my tongue this last week, one of which was just the, dire- the dinosaurs have escaped the park. They've escaped the enclosure, the electric fence, but they've also made it onto the mainland. 
And it's no longer this, you know, there's something about like in a sort of magical working sense, the way that the decision to move Burning Man online sort of splashed it everywhere or came at synchronistically at a time when the bonkers nature of living in 2020, you know, where you get the, like, I don't know if you, either of you have seen the, uh, the meme for year quill, <laughs> just sleep it off. You'll wake up in 2021. <laughs> but, but like, there's that. And then there's also this idea that I've been fascinated about that I think really speaks to the, you know, more of the core philosophy of Burning Man as I understand it and as I admire it, which is the Obi-Wan Kenobi that Burning Man in some important way has become nowhere and thus everywhere. And that this is required. And I think this speaks to, to loop this into your, your bit about a resurrection of the cacophony society and like return to the mysticism at the root of this institutional religion. If, if I can say that, that, yeah, there's a sense in which any school of philosophy suffers under the charismatic leadership of its key people. And something really important has been going on with Burning Man ever since the passing of Larry Harvey. And this feels like a continuation of that. This feels like a dethronement in some way that sort of creates a a sort of creative moment where like the blue ghost of Burning Man can show up wherever we want, which brings me, I think, to my questions about the actual beach burns and what y'all have heard about those and how there is a kind of, um, I don't know, like rainbow body apparition of the deceased Christ going on here around the world, you know, that we have, we've killed this thing, but now it's showing up everywhere in secret little parties. Yeah. So that's that. No, yeah. I went to the Baker beach one and uh, there were several mini mans there. And there was also a rather large, say like 16 feet tall, really, really nice man that they decided not to burn. I think there was some hesitation to burn anything because of the extant wildfires going on. Pretty reasonable. The Baker Beach burn that I was at had roughly like 200 people on it. And it was really, really lovely. Actually, my partner and I, and we brought our kid. We met up with some friends there. We were all socially distant. Everybody was wearing a mask. And a lot of people there were just like, man, this is like the nicest Burning Man that I've had in years. Like people who have gone to Burning Man in the past kind of felt like this was... There's something about the creative constraints going on in 2020 that have produced something um, unintentionally beautiful. So then there's the Ocean Beach burn, which was totally different, that the mayor, Mayor London Breed, came out and said, like, over a thousand people showed up on Ocean Beach. That may or may not be true. I'm not sure. I don't know that the number is worth disputing. But what definitely did happen is that one or two art cars showed up there and it was a hol- it was a Labor Day weekend, which is always busy for Ocean Beach, and it was a hot day, and it was a nice day, and whether or not people came for Burning Man or were just coming to hang out on the beach, somebody showed up with a gigantic sh- sound system and turned it into a mess, which was going to happen whether it was burners or not burners. So the Boz art car issued a long apology for showing up on Ocean Beach, and beyond that... I don't know. I wasn't there. But I do know that the Baker Beach side of things, there were no art cars. There was a small sound system. People were dancing to it. And when I left at roughly like 10 p.m., things were already petering out at roughly tops, like 200 people or so spread out pretty well. That's my report. Awesome. I know a lot of people who um, did their, their own physical burns for that night. 
who, you know, created some janky little weird thing in their backyard and set it on fire wherever they were in the world. And they, by and large, report having a great time. They uh, they, they they report it being amazing and, and kind of magical. Um, I was I was not one of them. I actually my burn night was weirdly like my burn nights traditionally on Playa. I've been doing the BMIR uh, man burn broadcast for I don't know nine ten years now. So I I have always spent my time as either host or color commentator, color commentator of that broadcast in the production studio or in, in the broadcast studio, talking to people, and periodically we all stick our heads out the door going, is it on fire yet? What's happening? Is it conflict going? No, no, no. So I was once again in a little, you know, in a, in a room talking on a microphone this year because BMIR asked me to do that again and host the slot for their weekend-long broadcast that was overlapping with the Manburn. But that did mean that I watched the official Manburn broadcast, the webcast, from the Wallapai Flats just on the very edge of uh, Burning Man's Fly Ranch property, which... Um, on the one hand, I totally appreciate why they burned it there. On the other hand, that is so uninspiring. I mean, you know, let's go burn the man exactly where everybody thinks we're going to burn the man. And, yeah. Okay. Um, but on the other hand... Yeah. Right. After you after you went to the trouble of writing 10 <laughs> articles in a row, creating all this mystery and worldwide Carmen San Diego yeah. stuff yeah. around it. A little disappointing. <laughs> yeah, actually, that that's I really wanted to, to get to that because in the latest one where you find yourself... Mm-hmm as the culprit burning the the man on fly yeah. ranch and just the way that it ends spoiler alert, I guess with <laughs> the man's being burned uh, by all the parallel universes and just, you know, again, just a note of appreciation about how um, history, like if evolution does seem to have a direction, I, this was the first talk I ever gave at burning man, which was the first public talk I ever gave in 2009 evolution does seem to have a direction in it and it's towards uh maximum entropy production which ultimately means like the ball rolls always down the mountain and so it felt so so sage to read the story from you and to have it result with you you meeting your parallel self which seems to me to be so characteristic of whatever futures any of us happen to end up in, that there's this profound deepening non-duality of like meeting ourselves in the mirrors of the digital exhaust we've created and all these other things. And that you just nailed it, that there's something about the fact that this is the way that the fates have decided Burning Man is going to unfold in the year of the multiverse. It was just like, especially apropos. So just like an allay to that. Yeah. Thank you. The the wonderful thing about that series is just how weirdly meta it became because it it was in fact, you know, the series about me being pulled in to do one last job for the Philosophical Center trying to figure out where the man burned was in fact Stuart Mangrum calling me going, "Hey, they're going to burn a man somewhere. I don't know where yet. I kind of want to talk about this. You want to write about this? One more one more theme series." I mean, it was exactly what it pretended to be in a very weird way. And then there was actually a moment because uh, I didn't know a damn thing. I mean, you know, I came in with no knowledge. We were just totally winging it. But I figured out where it was going to be, you know, not that it was hard um, early on, because they actually got concerned that I was getting too close in my investigation. And so there was actually a discussion about whether it should be, caveats getting too close. Should we shut this down? Which is just, you know, marvelous for noir. It was so wonderfully meta in that sense. So thank you. Um, It it turned out to, you know, was winging it the whole way, but it was not an accident how it it developed. Yeah. But I, I think that the interesting thing is, is that for the first time since this all started, 
more people. I we don't we'll never have numbers on this because you know we don't know how many people were out there doing their own thing. But it seems very likely to me that on man night during the time when the man would normally burn, more people were doing what Naomi did and going out someplace or you know building something where they are and burning a little effigy, having rituals in person where they were, than were turning their eyes to as close to Black Rock City as as we could come. The the center was gone. People, they had a webcast, but, you know, the the center, I think, was was gone. I think it's very reasonable to suspect that more people were doing their own thing this year than were looking into, you know, what was supposed to be the the official moment. And I I think that's significant. Sometimes I, like, I just miss, like, obvious stuff. But, I mean, I'm trying to understand between all of us, like, the tenor of, I don't know, it seems like Burning Man, this seems fine. Like, it seems like it could use a breather. This whole romantic back to the roots thing is is awesome. Thumbs up. You know, having an online experiment that finds out what the questions are and what some of the limitations are, awesome. And also, to your point earlier, Naomi, although despite what I said, I think it's not such a bad thing that the momentum of this huge thing just kind of like takes a breather in terms of the ecological aspect of it. Because... I don't go, and I did go every year for a while, but I haven't been back since 2015. And so for me, it doesn't seem like a big deal. 17? 17. Oh, wow. That's right. We went in 2017. But if that was that, awesome. That three, that three years feels like five. That does three, seem sir. Like, it does seem like <laughs> three, a long sir. time. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think it seems like a good thing to me, but then I'm sure some people were really upset about it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I think, does anyone disagree that it was... <laughs> It's, th- it's good that things went this way. Well, I, I think it's 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 all over it's all over the map that the things went this way. I mean, I, I think my I think the metaphor of this is a culture now in diaspora is is needs to be taken playfully, but it's, it's still useful. The the center has not held. It, it's not just that it can't hold; it has not held. And so we are we are seeing all kinds of things happen as a result. We are seeing. On the one hand, a desperate institutional attempt to stay existent. Institutional Burning Man is in serious trouble. They are about to launch a major fundraising campaign. And the the explicit message is, if you want this to exist in 2021 or beyond, then, you know, we we have to raise a bunch of money in order to to keep things going. And that's that's not a joke. It It is in that kind of crisis. You're seeing a split, as I mentioned earlier, between the Burning Man as an aesthetic movement, as an arts movement, and Burning Man as a social movement, the Burners Without Borders side of Burning Man, which, you know, they, they know what they're doing. They've, they've found themselves. They're going. They're incredibly relevant. Burning Man as an arts movement is not sure what the hell to do with itself right now. It, it doesn't know what it's doing. I have ideas. I got lots of good ideas, but that's not the same thing as, you know, they're actually being a direction that, uh, that, that people are going in, want to follow, and what could be wrong. Um, so, it, it's very there's very much an identity crisis around that we're seeing a, a split between people who are trying to find a center online i mean it's the original plan for virtual burning man had been to be one massive experience that everyone could come to and that did not end up happening and and let's let's acknowledge that this was all you know put together desperately by volunteers at the last minute doing heroic work i mean you know this was uh, this this was all crisis management in in so many ways but it uh, it ended up being eight different official universes. So, you know, there was never a, a and they, they tried to treat this like, oh, well, that's sort of, you know, it's all one city, eight different theme camps, but it did not work. It didn't work out that way at all. There were very different experiences. They were accessed very different ways. 
But but the effort, the impulse to do everything online had been, we'll all come together. We'll all find ourselves in, on, online again. We can still do this. Whereas, you know, others decided, nope, I'm, I'm myself included. Nope, I'm doing it locally. I am I'm trying to take the people who are, in fact, around me and want to participate and offer them something that is that is going to do this. I mean, it's it's all over the map. It's all the things happening at once. And whether it's a good or bad thing depends on, you know, what you're looking for and what you want to pay attention to. Is it fair to call this uh, eschatological in that regard? <laughs> it's like almost, I don't know. I don't want to get too, too woo about this, but you know, there is something about this year that, that feels very 2012 to me. And I've seen some really excellent work, including Doug Rushkoff's present shock, which is a big influence on this show, as well as there was a, an article written by Aaron Lewis this year, Aaron Z. Lewis, called The Garden of Forking Memes, How Digital Media Distorts Our Sense of Time. And both of these authors, and you know, I think also Terrence McKenna was sort of originally pointing to the way that the digital media, by preserving the past and by anticipating the future, and also, you know, intentionally or inadvertently creating the past and future in some sort of magical sense, you know, through a kind of like uh, Michael Crichton sphere-esque participation in outcomes that we're now, like since 2012, Aaron Z. Lewis said, we haven't had a past or future. And like uh, artist Douglas Copeland talks about this, that the past, present, and future have collapsed into a single moment. And so, you know, we're just sort of in this like rolling storm of time in which, you know, we may have better or lesser vantages, uh, a longer horizon, depending on what cloud layer we're in. But that it's... I said smoke cloud, though. It's a short horizon. Well, I mean, that would just suggest that we're sort of um, deep in the shit, really, that we're just, you know, maybe um, down in the in the column. But at any rate, yeah, that's just, again, more riffing on the core of this show is like, what is all of this stuff that we're talking about mean in terms of the way that we stand in time, if that's even an appropriate metaphor, you know, the way that we orient ourselves to these flows and these, the attraction that through our, our relations, we're being, you know, drawn into different histories and different futures. And I'm curious to know where you want to run with that particular uh, nugget. I want to be humble about it. Um, this is something Naomi and I have talked about a bit actually. And uh, so I want to throw it to her in a moment, but I'm not going to make a big grand prediction everything is happening and uh, you know I, I i don't have any idea how it's all going to settle down what i can tell you is that in my personal experience it very quickly seemed to me that in this new environment in this new medium in all this newness we did not know how to do the big things anymore that it's not just that we literally cannot create black rock city right now it's that in this kind of environment we don't know how to we were saying earlier, you know, this is an environment where I don't know how to give a gift. This is an environment where I don't know how to create mayhem of a productive sort. There are all kinds of basic human things that if you take it into a virtual realm or you do it in a enforced social distance way, I don't know how to do yet. And so my emphasis has very much been on, okay, can we rebuild this from the ground up in some way? How do we get to, you know, understanding how to do this basic level stuff again? And so I don't have much to say on, you know, how, where does it all come together? What I can say is that after months and months of doing Zoom experiments, I'm confident that I can, that if people are willing to join in, in a sincere way, I can create what will be a Burning Man-like experience uh, for, for a small group of people. What I can say is that I, for the first time, 
took my backyard and turned it into an arena for an art experience and had people come over one to one and and it blew our minds it was incredibly challenging and difficult and and amazing i figured out how to do that for what that's worth so these things are possible that's what i know i think that you know everyone else is going to be following their interests and motivations and trying to figure things out and i think Personally, I think there's a lot more to be gained from learning how to crawl and then walk before we try to fly again. But I think a lot of people are going to be, you know, like to say, trying to say, okay, wh- how do we make the big home again? How do we do all the one thing again? Naomi? Yeah. I have been sensing ever since the pandemic and the shelter in place order came in. Man, the smoke is really messing with my throat. This is going to be a document of the amount that the. Fires have affected my airways, this recording, yeah. I mean. So you guys were talking about, or Kavya was talking about the loss of center, right? Like the we're, we're no longer looking to the sort of capital of Burning Mandom mm-hmm. this year, or not, at least not as much. And actually, I feel like there's, a, there's a, a wider moment going on, particularly in the United States, where we've stopped looking to the center of the United States for leadership as well. Yeah. And I also think that it's no accident that in 2020, one of the most popular phrases I've seen in terms of human gatherings and people trying to make sense of things. Oh, sense making. That's another phrase. But digital campfires, digital campfires are like if you can imagine like this entire globe full of like little tiny little points of light, like deep playa all over the globe. People kind of like randomly stumbling on each other's like discord servers and Zoom calls that you find about, find out about because your friend told your friend about it. And then you jump in there and it's like, wow, I've been on this regular Zoom call now, like every Monday for the past couple of months. And it's that's actually deeply meaningful to me. So there's this like pullback to the tribal that I think is going on, not just for Burning Man, because Burning Man can't happen, but also for all these like larger organizations, even on the city level. Facebook refugees. Yeah, Facebook refugees. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That's a big exodus. I feel like one of millions of Moses is in, you know, being like, come my people, escape to the Discord server where you can hang out with Naomi. It's great. <laughs> uh, thanks. So, we, you know, the original question that, that Michael, you posed was something about like making sense of this, the, you know, is there a sense of history that can even be discerned right now? And if so, is there a sense of the future? I look out my window, actually, there is a, a weather advisory <clears throat> saying that um, the visibility in San Francisco was roughly, it was less than a quarter mile today. So we are certainly in some kind of singularity. Like we are in this swirling vortex of, of history right now that I believe, and a lot of people believe, like, for instance, Nora Bateson, who has been delightful on many different podcasts lately, including this one, I think. Yeah, she was on. Yeah, right. Yeah, we'll have her, we'll have her back on, too, because she's great. Right. Yeah. No, actually, yes. It, that one made me feel so much better about not being able to make sense of anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of what this show is for. Uh, if, you know. <laughs> but, but really, I do think that people are pulling back to these little tribal communities and digital campfires for a very good reason, like the same, the same feeling of like, if you have this regional blackout, like a, like a major power station has gone out and people really only start to, to relate to their neighbors and so on and so forth. That is exactly what happened on Hmm. Sunday night when the, during what should have been the temple burn or like the lead up for us in the temple burn is I heard the transformer pop in my neighborhood. I was on the phone with my brother and then suddenly several streets around us all went out And so my wife and I decided to 
get in the hot tub and watch Kundun on my laptop. <laughs> I was like, this is a perfect end to burn week. This like, this really feels, you know, it's cause it's about like, you know, Kundun about the 14th Dalai Lama. It's the Martin Scorsese 97 film listeners. If you don't know where, you know, it shows the, the life of the Dalai Lama up to the point where he's forced by the Chinese to leave mm-hmm. Tibet. And you know, that really feels like it speaks to the moment that we're living through, you know, like to speak to that. Yeah. Yeah. Exile. Yeah. That exactly what you were talking about, the you know, the diaspora. So yeah, again, that's just a funny coincidence about how to return to the dinosaurs for a moment. We're going through what I think my friend Rachel Nagelberg, who wrote a novel called The Fifth Wall, which is actually is the, the someone else has been thinking about this thing my friends and I have been thinking about for years, which is there's something about the way that we're technologically empowered to take a perspective on ourselves, like an out-of-body experience through the quantification of the self and surveillance and so on that is sort of akin to the holographic life review that you get in near-death experiences. And so caveat, when you're talking about the real world imitating the fiction that you're writing, the sort of, you know, the meta layer of all of this is uh, what I've been thinking about as a fifth wall rupture, you know, where the characters find out that they're being acted, Mm -hmm. that they're like fleeting fictional creatures. Mm -hmm. And that that's, that's like what's going on in our life right now. And so for like you to be, you know, talking about, Oh, it's like a, it's like having a blackout in your neighborhood. And it's like, well, yeah, I had a literal blackout the night of the temple burn. And it was a precisely the kind of like warm human restoration that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, Mitch, if you wanted to like place a cherry on that Sunday. (laughs) Yeah, so I think that we can say that cyber sex didn't cause people to stop having sex. And by the same token, <laughs> maybe I just, uh, and by the same token, Christianity didn't really take off for another couple hundred years after Jesus died. So, you know, two sides of the coin there. Maybe I'm just getting older and I'm kind of accept the, the cycles a little bit more. I definitely lots of freaking out about political situation and, and other things. But I, in, in terms of lamenting, uh, romantically lamenting certain aspects of the degradation or some, of some kind of uh, uh, something about Burning Man, because some people seem to do that. I'm not saying anybody here necessarily, but I just never, it's never bothered me. Like it definitely has changed and it's never bothered me because it should change just to a certain extent. And then that's something we learn about and then things die and things change. And when things go on the internet and they go to any other medium from one medium, it's just not going to be the same oral culture and, and writing are completely different. And that was very problematic for people that were not ha- happy about, about the change, but then another generation is born. You know, so if we have lucky enough to have more generations born at the rate we're going. Yeah. Well, so much more I'm sure everyone could say about that, but let's tie a bow on it. It's been awesome to have everybody on this call. Caveat, Naomi, Raven, thank you all so much. Folks, this is one that I feel is like especially important that you go to the show notes so you can actually access these people's work. And I encourage you to do that. But yeah, thank you all so much again for being on Future Fossils. Thank you. What a pleasure. It's nice to meet you. Great talking to you all. I'm falling out of these open eyes Feeling all of the world outside 